Hey everyone, welcome back to the Last Word on Sens podcast. It is episode 70. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger. And making his return to the podcast today is the managing editor of Silver 7, uh, Nate. Thank you so much for joining me. How's it going today, man? Good, really good. I would say my overall uh, happiness is a lot kind of higher today. We'd been recording this pod, you know, three days ago. Um, maybe wouldn't be in such a good mood, but even in a really bad season like the Sens are having just you know kicking the crap out of the Habs always makes you feel good uh so have excited to excited to be here yes I am very excited to have you there as I was telling you just before we started recording it's been about a month actually since I've gotten a chance to uh record a podcast episode just due to the holidays and you know scheduling and stuff not working out and uh the last time I had recorded DJ Smith had just been let go the Ottawa Senators blew a 3-0 lead to the Arizona Coyotes, and I was midway through watching the Colorado Avalanche game, where I think when I ended recording, I honestly want to say it was, I think they were down a goal, and then they came storming back, had the lead, and then blew the lead, obviously. Um, let's let's dive into you know the, the play over the last month, because I think a fair statement would be saying a lot of ups and downs with this team, which uh, unfortunately isn't much changed i would say from what the first couple months were under a different coach um just quickly looking over their record since the coaching change they lose to arizona lose to colorado beat the penguins in overtime beat the maple leafs that's another good feeling but then lose to the devils beat the sabers lose the canuck kraken oilers flames sabers finally get off the the skid there with a, a win against the sharks blow a lead against the Colorado Avalanche once again on Tuesday. And then, as you mentioned, uh, yesterday, we we're recording this on Friday, so Thursday night, they beat the Montreal Canadiens 6-2. to two. It's I don't even know where to start with this team. I guess let's just talk about their overall play for the last month. Take me through, you know, how you felt since the coaching change. You know, where are you standing with this team right now? Just, just kind of anything you want to go with here. I think that... I, in general, came to appreciate DJ Smith a lot more over the course of his tenure. And what I mean by that is I didn't always agree with his general hockey philosophy. There were some things that he did, even in their kind of rebuilding years, that I did not, you know, agree with just from a, you know, roster construction deployment perspective or whatever. But at the same time, I really came to appreciate the way he handled the players I know that towards the end of his tenure, he was a bit of a lightning rod for large segments of the fan base. But I personally have to say that I appreciated the way that he tried to maintain an even keel. I'm not someone who's ever played like professional sports, but I've played, you know, enough organized sports at, you know, high enough level over the course of my life to really at least in my opinion believe that there's not a lot of good in just making a scene for the sake of making it. And so I was definitely someone who at the start of this year had kind of come around to the idea of letting DJ have a shot with a good roster. I wrote a couple of pieces about that for the site saying, you know, this is DJ's chance to make it happen. But at the same time, you know, when we got to the point of him being relieved of his duties, beyond all the noise around the the fan base clamoring him for him to be fired the results just weren't there like the team wasn't playing well enough i understood why they had to make the change i also understood even beyond you know the 
local here local you know not maybe not hero but <laughs> local uh connection with with Jacques Martin bringing him in you know he's a details coach I think as we'll probably get into it he's a bit of a hard-ass coach I think it's become evidently clear so you know I understand why they made that change and I think that what's come since then has been I don't know unmitigated disasters maybe a bit strong but honestly not by too much right like if the idea was to jump start a season I think they were 10 and 10 or 11 11 or maybe 11 13 something like that the season was not going well but it wasn't lost when they made that coaching change I think it's lost at this point like we're just we're 40 games into the season right and so if you had thought that making this change was going to you know have the kind of instant impact of changing whatever you thought ailed this squad that that just hasn't happened so in that sense you know the play has been pretty disappointing for the last you know month and a bit yeah i i completely agree especially with the the season loss comment i mean it's you know it's tough to to say but like you're you're lying to yourself if, if you don't think that's the case you know like the team is dead last in the division and you know, that yes, they had they still have four to five games in hand on most people, but they're 12 points behind Buffalo, who's next in their division. They could win all five of the games in hand and still be, be behind the Buffalo Sabres. So they are firmly last in their own division. As of the other night before they beat the Montreal Canadiens, they were only two points ahead of the Chicago Blackhawks. That is just the most overwhelming stat I think I had pulled this year where I was looking at it and I went that cannot be right and again yes Chicago has five games in hand but there is no point in January of 2024 that there's no amount of games in hand that you should have that means you are within two points of the Chicago Blackhawks so this season is absolutely un- like unfortunately lost again they're 16 and 24 and it's it's tough because as a fan of this team I, I find myself going back and forth of like, I, I really don't know what the best long-term outcome for the rest of this season is, if that makes sense. Like I almost find myself, there's no way I want to cheer for another tank, you know, when in yeah. reality, a, a, a top three pick is probably what is most beneficial at this point. But I'm like, like, I just can't bring myself to cheer for that for the sixth year in a row. Yeah. I, I think so. Two things, you know, to the point of, is the season totally lost? If they went 31 and 11 the rest of the way over the last 42 games, that gets them to 94 points. And that might not even be enough, right? It would take a down year in the East to make the playoffs. And that was if they go 31 and 11. So they'd need to be probably a, by a decent margin, the best team in the league, you know, look like a 120 point pace team. And so, you know, yes, the season is lost. It sucks to say that, but it is. To your point about whether we need to cheer for a tank or whether we need to cheer for development, I'm right there with you because the whole point of doing a tear down to the studs rebuild is that after a period of time, you contend, right? That's that's the deal. Management says we're going to blow this thing up. You're going to sit through some bad hockey. And as someone who's been writing about the team for almost 10 years now and has watched, I don't know, 90% of the games, maybe 95% of the games over the last 10 years, I've watched a lot of bad hockey. 
and you know I can I can I can say that you know with a lot of confidence and I have a good feeling of what you know good hockey and bad hockey looks like I'm very very familiar with bad hockey at this point but the whole point of those years of suffering is is the trade-off will be not just fringe playoffs right like some amount of sustained success people would joke about the unparalleled success that was being promised, but you need like some version of that at the end of the, of the line. And if you look at the pieces that they've assembled today, this is a probably a, a, you know, even bigger discussion than we can have on this particular angle, but you'd wonder a little bit, did they get enough of those kind of high end players out of the rebuild? Like was, did they get enough? And if you say no, if your assessment is they haven't actually done that, they still need more, then you're faced with a really difficult question, which is what you're alluding to. Do they need to do another bit of tearing things down? And I, oof, that's really tough because even though, you know, I think everyone would agree the three core pieces are Stusla, Sanderson, and Kachuk, right? Those are the, the three kind of untouchable guys. Like Brady Kachuk is 25, or he's, he's going to be 25. Uh, Stusla's not, you know, 25, but he's what, 22 now, or he's going to be 22 this season? I think same, yeah. Sanderson, same, same draft year, so same age. That's not 19, right? You, you can't, even with this core, which is, you know, a youngish core, you can't really lock yourself in into like a two-year rebuild project that that it's it's just they're in a really this year i i think i i wrote and i said a number of times like this year was going to be a big test and they really needed it to go well because there wasn't really a backup plan and now we're in the situation where we're trying to find out okay uh things didn't go well what what's the plan right what's what's the way forward i don't know i honestly don't know yeah, like I, I agree. And that's, you know, I, I know people probably aren't want to hear this podcast and hear two people go, I don't know what to do, but I, <laughs> I agree. Like it's, you know, Tim Stutzler is 22. He turned uh, 22 four days ago. So happy belated mm-hmm. birthday to Tim Stutzler. But yeah, like as you said, you know, assuming, you know, not assuming this year is right off isn't the right word, but this year is lost in terms of making the playoffs and starting that team. Cause as you said, just being a fringe playoff team every year, isn't good enough. You don't tank for five years just to hope you make the playoffs every, every, every other year or whatever, right? You rebuild like Ottawa did to build it back up and be a legitimate contender in the playoffs and try and give yourself a run at the Stanley cup. And this team is just nowhere close to that. And, and I don't know what the answer is either. I, I've been trying to ponder that a little bit because I, I think the sad reality of it is they locked themselves into a core that just might not be good enough. Um, and on paper, it still look like I'm still extremely high about this team every time I see their potential healthy roster because their entire top nine looks very solid on paper, you know, with how Claude Giroux is playing and even Tarasenko. I know he's not close to prime Tarasenko, but no one should have expected that, right? As as your seventh or eighth best forward, now that, you know, Shane Pinto's in, uh, back in the mix and Ridley Gregg and, you know, he he's taking a step up. Like, they should have a good top nine. But I, I just kind of wonder if 
they've locked themselves in with so many long contracts for guys that I, I don't know if I can point to any one player and say they're overpaid, but the group of them together just does not seem to be working. And you can't just keep running it back. It's as simple as that because we've seen now for four or five years, and obviously not everyone has been there for all four or five years, but for two or three full seasons now, this just has not worked. They have been a bottom half of the league team until the last month and a half of the season or so when they rip off a heater and then everyone says, oh, look how good they are going into next year. It's like, well, at the end of the day, they're playing a lot of backups and a lot of teams are just taking them lightly because they're 20 points out of the playoffs by the time it's March, right? So I I feel like a change needs to happen this summer. I just really don't know what that is, but it's got to be moving out a core piece, whether that's Drake Batherson, whether that's Josh Norris, whether it's Thomas Shabbat, I know his name's come up a lot uh, and I've discussed, you know, why I don't think it maybe be a great idea to sell him just yet in terms of his lowest, feels like it's his lowest value, but I just, I, I can't see how they run this core back with basically all the same players, except for someone replacing Tarasenko next year. Yeah. I, I, first of all, agreed. It's difficult to envision just running the core back and saying, hopefully, you know, they're a year older, a year better because, you know, we, as I said at the start there, they're not 19 anymore. That doesn't mean that, you know, the, the Stuzlas and the Sandersons and the, the Gregs of the world can't get a little bit better, but the giant leap has already happened, right? The, the giant leap in player development when they're coming into the NHL typically happens in the age 19 season, the age 20 season. And, you know, we've already seen that from, from Stuzla and, and Sanderson to some degree. So, I don't think it's realistic. Like if you're being cold eyed about evaluating this roster, maybe you get kind of minimal uh, further, you know, growth from those guys, but it's not going to be like a, a, a star leap. And that's not a critique of them, right? Like I think Stuzla is a really great player. I think at his kind of peak of his powers, he's a, you know, top five to 10 center in the league, which is great. You need that guy. I think, also, you know, to your point about locking in folks on long-term contracts, just to kind of dig into that point a little bit, I think a year ago, the general consensus in at least the kind of SEMS uh, community was that the cap sheet looked great. I'm not so sure. Now, there's, and that's not to say that there aren't some good deals on there. I think the Stuzla deal looks great. And it will and will look continue to look good. That's that to me is a big value contract. I think the Kachuk contract is at least fair, if not value. I think the Sanderson contract is fair based on what he's played like right now. It would really be great if he could actually take a, a little bit more of a step. Again, not a knock on Jake Sanderson, who I think is a good player, but you know they did rush a little bit to give him a really big deal, and. You know, if he's if, if he is for the rest of his career what he is this year, very good player. I don't think you're losing, you know, by having him on eight by eight. But he's not like a top ten D man in the league. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Thomas Shabbat. Again, a player I like, I think is good. Um, not giving you huge value there. And the Norris contract to me is a huge question mark. Has the potential to be a bit of a boondoggle, um, but you know. If he's at the top of his game, it's it's value. So yeah, what are we left with? We're left with, 
you know, several big contracts of which one is a definite premium value. One, uh, two that we think are like mm, pretty good, like Kachuk Sanderson and, you know, two Shabbat Net, Norris, but I would say Norris kind of further down the line. Shabbat, I think is like, uh, Norris, I'm like, ooh. Corpus Allo's deal, I think looks like a boondoggle right now. <laughs> you know, that's that's a real problem. Um, and um, yeah, there's a lot of less efficient money than you would have guessed a year ago, right? I think a year ago, that was a thing that a lot of fans not totally unfairly pointed to. Um, but a lot of that was predicated on an assumption that the players would kind of take a step. I didn't even disagree with a lot of the deals. I, I, I will, as a last time, just remind that I was not huge, super huge on the Norris deal. But the other contracts I basically always like was like, these are the type of bets that are, you know, teams like Ottawa should be making. You hope that your guys turn transcendent and then you have real value deals. It hasn't quite happened that way. And so the, the cap sheet's not as quite as clean as it as it was, which returning to your point about what do you do in the summer makes it a little bit trickier, right? If we're thinking about, you know, how you improve this roster, you're not trading guys from a position of strength. If you're offloading Norris, if you're offloading Shabbat, you're not trading them on super premium deals, right? And so it just, it reduces the return you're going to get uh, in a trade and it just it makes it a little bit trickier that way yeah i completely agree and honestly something that i, I i've been trying to kind of back and forth in my own brain about how you know what side i want to take on it but one thing when i'm looking at this cap sheet as well and something that i think becomes super obvious is you know Pierre Dorian, you want to talk about lightning rods. He was a bit of a lightning rod by the end as well. I think he did some good, you know, obviously even, you know, like he stuck his neck out a little bit on the Kachuk pick and even on the Jake Sanderson pick. That was not unanimous popular pick at the time. You know, a lot of people, including myself, thought Jamie Drysdale would have been a great option there. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think one of the biggest things that Pierre Dorian probably almost didn't take enough criticism from, from people in general is just, how many small mistakes he made. Um, you know, there there was obviously a, a couple bigger ones as well. You know, we don't need to rehash them. But but just like the, the little deals of like going and identifying Zach McEwen as a guy that you need to give three years to. Travis Hamanick has a full no-move clause for this year and next is the most absurd thing. I've, I just, I, I can't wrap my head around it. But it's just uh, all these little things that add up. You know, the Jonas Corposalo deal, Again, that's not little, but, you know, at the time, people defended that pretty staunchly, I would say, by saying, well, it's only $4 million. Like, yeah, but that's $4 million that they, quote unquote, only have, you know, like th this team, because of how much they've paid on the top end, which I didn't disagree with basically any of those moves, because as you said, even the Josh Norris one, in my opinion, that is the kind of player that I'm fine taking a swing on at, at an eight by eight or just under. Like I'd rather them do that than go pay a 28 year old in free agency that money. Right. And, and you can argue if it could have been spent a little better or a little cheaper or whatever, and that that's totally fine. But the biggest problem I think that I'm seeing right now, and not, not biggest, sorry, but a problem that's compounding this is just how little help they have kind of in the depths of this roster to, you know, kind of round it out because as we're seeing, naturally you cannot expect your entire top nine to stay healthy all year, which I, I think maybe a little mistakenly or a lot mistakenly this summer, 
both the front office and the fans kind of did, where on paper, yeah, it looks great. Stutzla, Kachuk, Norris, Giroux, Tarasenko, Batherson. You got Greg and Pinto in there. Kubalik can come in and round out that top nine. Well, obviously, Pinto's out for 41 games. We didn't know that, but he didn't have a contract heading in and was hurt at times as well. Ridley Gregg is, was an unknown, you know, Tarasenko, Giroux, they're older. Josh Norris has had a long in injury history. Like you just can't assume that all those guys are going to stay healthy. So when you then already chip away at the depth of your roster by A, signing just not great NHL veterans, if I'm being honest, and B, wasting, not wasting's aggressive, spending draft picks in maybe not the most favorable position over the course of two or three years. Like, Obviously, the Tyler Boucher one, but, you know, trading for Alex Dabrinka, which I don't think was a bad trade at the time, but just all these trades of first round picks and how they use the first round picks and second round picks, all that stuff does add up. So even if one of them is not the end of the world, when you make eight, nine, ten of them, it just makes it hard for when you face any adversity, it's going to be hard to overcome. Yeah, I, I actually really want to pick up on what you're saying about injury luck and expectations, because Last year, there was a little bit of a feeling, and I, I actually, I think you make a really good point there about how the front office seemed to be betting on good health for everybody. Every team does to some degree. So just as a caveat, you know, every, every management is, is hoping that all their top guys can be healthy. But besides Norris last year, the forward group was remarkably healthy. This team has never been without, or not never, but in the last two seasons when they ostensibly were trying to win games has not been without Kachuk, Giroux, or Stusla for basically any period of time. Like imagine what this would look like if Tim Stusla, like heaven forbid, blew his ACL or something, right? There is, there's, <laughs> there's, there's been some bad luck, I guess, but not in any meaningful way. Nothing you can point at to say injuries were what derailed this any more than, any normal team suffers from injuries, right? And so to your point about, you know, making these bets on the depth that were inadequate because they were counting on everything going right, I, I think that's an astute point. The other thing I, I would say, and just shout out to uh, Tyler Ray, aka Defense Minister on uh, Twitter, who's a great follow and, and just a good guy in general. He's made this point a couple of times, and I, I think it's very true that a lot of these little mistakes that you're describing are kind of caused by two things. Tyler's point, and I think it's correct, has always been that they've never, or Pierre Dorian never had to manage to the cap. And when you have to actually manage to a, a budget, it is a lot harder than you know when you are so far below that it doesn't matter if you blow a million bucks. And it also, the stakes are much higher when you're trying to win games than when it doesn't matter if you have a bad contract, right? And so all of these little weaknesses that were always there, that have been there ever since Dorian took over as the GM, but didn't matter because they weren't trying to win and or he had, a, you know, still flew so far below the cap that it didn't matter. When it came time and those things started to matter, then, you know, we see all these weaknesses come out. And then the second aspect of it, just to kind of build on that point, I think that, it really underlines the shallowness of the Sens front office operation, right? It A lot of these mistakes, the little mistakes that you're alluding to, 
to me anyways, read like not enough resources, not enough people, you know, looking at the stuff that needs to be looked at. There's only, only so many hours in the day, right? And if you only have a staff of whatever it was, like five people, six people that were responsible for all of the personnel decisions across an entire organization, just stuff's going to get missed. You're not going to do a good job. And so in, in that regard, I guess I will sound a slightly more optimistic note, you know, under Ann Lauer, they've definitely started to beef up the front office. I would like to see more, like more, 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 more. You look at the, you know, the size of their scouting operation, the size of their analytics operation, just the size of their front office operation in general is still, you know, dwarfed by some of the more, um, expertly run franchises so i'd like to see even more of it but i do have more faith beyond just the fact that you know it's a new group of people the way that they are approaching these things i do take some uh faith in that and so if i had to say going forward you know what is the cause for optimism they might actually be able to properly assess the roster properly assess alternatives properly build the depth that you're describing I have a lot more confidence in the process that this group has than, than the prior group. I completely agree. And I I think that's really well put because, you know, I think one of the things that's encouraging for me too, is while they're building on the staff, they're building in multiple departments too. Like we've seen them make multiple analytical hires, which is just, they had a small analytical department in years past, but it's really not something that seemed to have much of a focus. And it seems to be getting a bigger emphasis, which I think is already going to help make up some of that gap, as you mentioned, between if you've already got a small department, using things like data where you don't have to go out and actually put hours and hours of game film on someone. Obviously, that is still very important, but it gives you just another element to look at, right? And um, I guess one of the bigger bigger pieces of news since I've reported too that I, I didn't really uh, touch on was that they they hired Dave Poulin, obviously for the uh, the front office, and uh, Steos is now the uh, official GM. He you know solidified that position, which I don't think was a shock. Um, in, in terms of Dave Poulin, I don't really have a strong take one way or the other. I saw a bunch of people the day of that you know that weren't Sens fans or whatever kind of laughing, being like, "Oh, it's Pierre Maguire 2.0. It's like no, it's not that. Like I, I don't I, I don't agree with everything that Dave Poulin said at TSN over the past couple of years, but he is not Pierre Maguire. We, we don't have to do that whole song and dance, you know? So um, yeah, like I think if we want to take a little bit more of an optimistic approach and, and where do you go from here? I, I still think that a big move of some kind needs to be made this summer. And I don't want them to just make a move for the sake of making a move. Um, but they do need to explore every option that they have and try and figure out what they can do to try and switch this roster up a little bit, because it's, it's just painfully obvious that this group of guys specifically, there's a lot of good individual pieces here, but together they're just not really working. And, um, you know, like I pulled some stats just before we had hopped on from natural stat trick from the start of the season to the day that DJ got fired, the auto senators ranked 19th in Corsi four percentage with a 49.5% and 22nd in expected goals percentage with a 48.5%. Since taking over, uh, they are now, 16th with a 51.13% Corsi 4 percentage and 20th with a 48.4%. So they went down 0.1%. And I'm willing to bet that if I excluded that Montreal game from the other night where they absolutely dummied Montreal for about 45 minutes, 
these numbers would look even worse. So the the point I'm trying to make is that it's just very clear that even with the new coach, and obviously things are going to take time to change for Martin to kind of get the system that he really wants there, but these players just don't completely gel together. And I, I don't know if a different look is what they need. Allocating the money differently is what they need. But I do think there is a, a move that needs to be made this summer as well as improving the depth because it, it is tough to play when you're getting just not much out of your fourth line on a nightly basis and out of your sixth or fourth defenseman, depending on how, you know, a couple guys in those lineups get used. Yeah. I So pick up on a, on a couple of things you say, just to uh, kind of tie the knot on the, the front office stuff. Um, I don't have any deep thoughts on, on Dave Poulin. I'm not my favorite guy philosophy wise, but he, he's super, he's super well liked. Um, and by all accounts is a really professional guy. So, you know, whatever. I, I totally agree with your take. He's not Pierre Maguire. No deep thoughts. I would say, though, from an analytics perspective, just so, you know, listeners understand, you know, where the Sens were at on an analytics perspective. They had a part-time consultant who ran analytics from them where he had another full-time job and, you know, was like sourcing data from other, you know, publicly available sites, right? Like that's, no slander to this man if he's listening to the podcast. Um, but, you know, that was the like level of seriousness that they accorded to it. And today they've got Sean Tierney, who is a director, which is, you know, for folks that I guess aren't familiar with the corporate world structure, is a fairly senior title. You don't become a director, you know, for nothing, right? In um, the hockey front office parlance, you know, he's going to be reporting to a VP who's going to be reporting to the head of their operation. And, you know, he's going to have folks underneath him who are analysts and, and this sort of thing. So they're recording real importance to it. So, to, you know, to your point, um, they are changing things up. It's also, I think, important to contextualize how different it is. In terms of the roster construction stuff, the thing that I've come to, I don't know, realize or come to believe as time has gone by is that the team is less than the sum of its parts. There are some teams that are more than the sum of their parts. There are some teams that are, I don't know, exactly what you expect them to be. And at the start of this year, I don't think I'm alone in saying that I expected them to be a lot further ahead than they were today. If you just looked at the individual players on the team, there were some mild concerns that I had about the defensive aptitude of several of their players. But... At the same time, you know, the majority of those players had already been on the roster. And I think what's happened, you know, from a roster construction perspective, and we've talked about it from a couple different angles, but I think worth digging in here, is that there's kind of like a tipping point, right? You can only have so many bad defensive players on your team. You can have only have so many guys whose entire deal is shooting the puck before it becomes a problem, right? You need some connective tissue. You need to, you know, get the puck, to move the puck efficiently, to, you know, defend properly. And I think this was already a team whose top six forwards, several of which were not defensive standouts, you know, being generous, no, um, you know, disrespect intended to, you know, Brady Kachuk or, Drake Batherson, because I think overall they are productive players, but not what I would call defensive stalwarts. Um, and then you add in Tarasenko and Kubalik, 
Tarasenko, as you said earlier, I think overall has been on the good end of what you could have expected from him, but is not a good defensive player. And you just, it, it, it all adds up, right? You just have too many players who are not adequate defensively, who are not going to do the things that are required for you to get the puck and, and move the puck. And that's how you end up in a situation where they, you know, they look like they're a lot worse than you think just based on the individual talent. And one of the main reasons I really come to believe this is um, that the team, every player on the team, basically, every, all the wingers that is, but all the defensemen too, look at their numbers with and without Ridley Gregg, who is the quintessential connective tissue guy. His whole deal is go get the puck, play defensively responsible, play responsible defensively, pardon me, move the puck. If you ever watch Ridley Gregg, actually, I wrote about him this morning in my five thoughts piece. He is so decisive with the puck. He moves it so fast. He finds good passes. He's totally unselfish. When the puck needs to be retrieved, he goes and gets it. And you put that guy, it's no coincidence that like, you know, Tarasenko's hit his best five on five success with him. It's no coincidence that, um, you know, several like Kubelik has, has as well. Several of the wingers have their best success with, with Greg uh, on the ice. I think that if we're talking about what a roster reconstruction would need to look like, they need to find a couple more guys. They don't even have to be as good as Greg, but they need to have the same characteristics. Um, and I actually think, you know, it's, it's funny to say this. We've talked about Norris before. I would be willing to part with Norris if you got like a slightly better version of Greg in return, like because that just fits what they need more, especially with Pinto coming back. Again, a player I like, but he is also a dude whose whole deal is shooting, right? He's 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 a center kind of by default because he's a big guy. He's very strong in the faceoff dot. He also doesn't move the puck super well. Again, no slight to him overall. I think he's a good player, but he fits that same profile. And they've got like six guys who are like that. It's too many. You, you know, you need a few guys who can get the puck, who can move the puck, who can be smart about it. And so, you know, if you want to talk about what would be a a major roster change you, you could get behind. I could I could get behind Norris for a guy who profiles like Greg. I don't have a hypothetical trade. Like it, it's not like I've I've done the research on that. But if we're thinking conceptually, how would you change the roster? Uh, I know it's popular these days to talk about trading defensemen. I would try that to shake up the forward core before I went to the defenseman. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And uh, it's funny, I also wrote about Ridley Gregg this morning. Uh, there's a piece <laughs> out right now at lastwordonhockey.com where I talk about uh, even with a healthy roster, he should be a top six forward. He does everything that this team has been preaching that they need for as long as I can remember, basically. As you said, he plays just so well in his own end. He's ferocious, he forechecks, but he, he's... They, I think their best defensive forward. I don't think that's uh, a stretch to say. Um, he just, he makes everyone better that he plays with. As you said, like currently on the team, I pulled these last night just to see uh, with him on the ice. Uh, they, the Sens give up the fewest uh, amount of shots against per 60 or shot attempts against per 60, as well as the third fewest uh, expected goals against per 60 as well. Uh, he He's just, the, the team is well below or above, above is positive, I guess, uh, in terms of average when they're, when he's on the ice first, not on the ice. And as you mentioned, like just everything he does well is incredible. Um, 
I don't, I, I completely agree in terms of moving Norris, even if you get what looks like a slightly less player in terms of points or what, or, or so, but can do different things. I, I would not mind that at all. Um, you know, a, a name that I had coming into the year, um, was kind of looking at was like a Travis Konechny, but his defensive results haven't been exactly what you would hope for either. Uh, I think he's a little better in terms of when it comes to underlying play, but even if it is a guy where, yeah, you take a step back from the guy's not going to score 40 goals. You know that they need someone who can be just more responsible defensively uh, and move the puck through all three zones to get it to the many shooters that they do have. And in terms of just this season, I do kind of wonder if they try to experiment now that Pinto, obviously we'll talk about that in, in a minute or two here, but now that Pinto's back and it, it looks like Norris will be getting healthy here again too, I really wonder if they experiment sliding one of them to the wing to give Greg a little more ice time up the middle because I can't really see any either of Greg or Pinto being their fourth C for an extended period of time slash don't think that would be the best use out of either of them uh, as well. So I kind of wonder if we see them try to slide either one. I would probably lean Norris, but I could be talked into Pinto as well. Slide either one of them to the wing and just see what that looks like uh, while while they kind of balance out those centers. I totally agree. I think that my, I guess, mildly spicy take, but I don't even feel like it's that spicy, is that the level at which Greg is playing at now um, is noticeably above what Pinto's ever demonstrated. Like this is again, no, no shot at Shane Pinto, who I think is a useful player on a good team. But last year, Pinto spent the whole season virtually with um, Debrinket uh, and Giroux and or Batherson and, or, you know, on in the top six. And it was very, very obvious in watching him that he just does not move the puck quickly enough to play with, you know, that kind of elite players as a center. I would be actually very interested in seeing Shane Pinto in a top six winger role. I really think that would actually suit his game better. I know why from a stereotypical hockey perspective, he plays center and winning faceoffs is valuable. I think in the NHL in 2024, you can have a guy who positionally plays primarily on the wing, but takes all your faceoffs. There's already a guy on the sense who does that. His name is Claude Giroux. Uh, you know, because their game otherwise suits being a winger. I've always seen Pinto, like, future in the NHL on the wing because the shot's incredible. He actually is, like, pretty strong in the corners. He wins puck battles. He's defensively responsible. But he just doesn't quite have the vision I would like from someone who's playing top six minutes at center. I think it's, as a third-line center, he's fine. You know, if your expectations for him is uh, from an offensive perspective, you know, he pots 15 to 20 goals and, you know, maybe he gets to 35 points or something. And on a in a good year when he's shooting hot on the second power play, maybe goes up to 25 goals or something. You know, I think that's a, that's a good role for him. If he wanted to maximize his abilities, I'd be really interested in seeing him as a top six winger. My feelings about Norris are complicated because I think that he's a great skater, first of all. Uh, and he does a number of things really well on the rush. Whenever they're breaking in transition, Norris is, is I think, a very dangerous guy to have on the rush. If you can get him the puck in space, he's he's really dangerous. But he does struggle a lot on, on the cycle game as, as a center. And he 
does not do enough defensively, you know, to, to really kind of move the needle there. And so much of his value, as I've said before, I said on this podcast before is tied up in goal scoring on the, on the power play. And if he's not scoring 15 goals a season on PP one for you, that contract becomes messy, right? Um, I would, I, all, all that is a long winded way of saying Stutzla is, he's the best player. He's the best player on the team. He's the best forward. He's the easier one. See, um, he's going to play the most minutes that's settled. I, right now I'd give Greg, I agree with you. I'd give Greg run. I think he's, I think he's the, the best option at two C right now. I would probably be inclined to start with Pinto on the third line and slot Norris on the wing. See what, see what he does on the wing. Um, and, um, and go from there. I think that, you know, having a lot of center depth is not a bad thing. Uh, someone gets injured, they can slide in. That's that's helpful. But totally agree with you. In in the interim, Greg's been so good. And it's not like I think people maybe sometimes forget that Greg is a first-round pick, right? Like, he, he has yep. pedigree. He, he was a very good player in juniors. I was uh, initially, very initially skeptical of him because the reasons that they gave for drafting him were so silly it was like, you know, he plays with an edge and, you know, get gets into people's faces a lot. And I was like, why the, are we playing, spending a first-round pick on a guy with profiles like this? But then I literally watched him in two preseason games, and he scored that highlight reel goal against Winnipeg. I don't know if you remember, in a preseason game a couple years ago. And I was like, oh, no, it's like, this guy's actually good. <laughs> yeah, I'm he, sure he, the, best, the best thing is nice, but he's actually good, it, too. It's on top of all the other stuff, right? Like Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And um, I just, I'm at the point in this season, too, where it's like, why not? You know, like, you literally have nothing to lose right now. So if Greg shows he can't quite handle the second line minutes that maybe you thought he could handle or you're hoping he can handle, at least you know now. And then in the offseason, you don't have to go in being like, well, we kind of think Greg might be our 2C, but we're not really sure. Like, we're just, we're kind of hoping someone steps up and takes, like, at least if you try this now, you will know for next year when, again, at some point you got to think this is going to get better. And that I would have to imagine that's the team's goal, you know? So... I just want to see them kind of experiment with stuff, uh, you know, right now. And, and it doesn't have to be anything like absolutely insane, but as you said, like having guys who can play center, but slide onto the wing is not a bad thing ever. So if that's starting Shane Pinto and using Josh Norris as, Hey, you're going to be our first line winger or second line winger or whatever. And we're, we're just going to feed you on the rush and see what you can do. And you don't have to worry about coming back into your own zone quite as aggressively and playing in the corners. Great. I really want to see what that looks like, because as you said, like it should be about finding the right ways to get these guys to fit. Uh, and, and then at the very least, like if you move Josh Norris to the wing and he ends up scoring, I don't know, 10% more goals than, he, you know, he was on track to do by the at this point in the season or, or whatever. Right. Just throwing on the number that probably boosts his trade value already. So at least you give yourself another option this summer where you go, okay, we're not really sure how this fits, but you know, Josh Norris scored 12 goals in his last 15 games. And now there's a legitimate offer on the table to move his money out and bring someone new in. I just, you got to experiment with stuff because just grinding the way they've gone right now isn't going to help anyone in the short term. And I don't think it's going to help the team in the long term either. 
Agreed. I, I'm actually, you know, really interested in what happens over the course of the period of time between now and the trade deadline, because for our earlier part of the conversation, it's very hard to accept a total teardown right now, right? Normally, I mean, beyond, you know, shipping out Kubelik and Tarasenko or whatever, right? Typical trade deadline deals. It's very hard to accept, you know, we're going to embark on a, on a new rebuild. May, I don't know. Maybe you could make a convincing case that's that's the way they have to go. Maybe Steos has, has got some really clever trades that he could pull off where, you know, he'd just trade in a slightly distressed asset for another team, slightly distressed asset. And both teams are betting that in new circumstances, those, those players take a jump forward. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it is a little bit difficult to imagine, you know, how they make these types of, of transactions, you know, without taking an immediate step back. And that is difficult to, to swallow. Um, So I'm very interested to see how the team plays between now and the trade deadline. The overall performance since transitioning to Mathain has not been good. The last four games have been good to very good. Even that game they lost to Colorado, um, you know, spit the bid in the third period, but had actually played very well before that. And if you look at the overall balance of the chances and stuff, you know, not not too bad. I, I'm really always extremely cautious about small samples, but I I do think. If I'm Sen's management, as we said earlier, they're not getting back into this, you know, barring going 34 and 8, which they're not going to do, but that would be about what they would need to do to get into it. But if in the next three weeks, you know, your core guys are, are all healthy and they look, they're all healthy right now, and they really show you something, you know, then you're making a different kind of trade in the offseason, right? Then, then, then you're not, you know, Maybe, maybe you're not trading North. Maybe, maybe you're not trading Shabbat or, or someone like that, right? Not to say that's that that's you know totally out of the out of the question, but um, you know the next three four weeks, maybe maybe they show you enough. On the other hand, if they fall on their faces in the next three four weeks, I think basically everything needs to be on the table. Save, save you know, Kachuk, Stuzla, Sanderson, um, everything else. I, I would be very sad to see a number of those guys go. I, I, you know, we've we've been through a lot, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you know, and besides those three, everything should be on the table. If if everyone if they keep falling on their face for the next three four weeks, yeah, it's it's always so hard to say, obviously. But I think I would be really surprised if this management group slash ownership group, really, I, I get that they seem to really do have a handle on what they're doing. And I don't think they're the type of group that would, you know, push all in just to, to make the playoffs one year and, and ruin anything. But I would be pretty surprised if they had an appetite to completely tear it down and rebuild again. Um, just because, again, on paper, this team has so much talent. The pieces should be there that you need. So I, I almost wonder if they do kind of look to two Canadian teams out West in, in Vancouver, especially in Winnipeg and both those teams should their cores showed higher highs than what Ottawa has shown right now. So that is a big caveat, but those were two teams this summer that I think myself for sure. And a lot of people, especially with Vancouver 
kind of thought it was probably time to start, you know, thinking about tearing it down or, or it looked like they were kind of retooling, you know, Vancouver ships out Bo, Bo Horvat at the deadline last year to the New York Islanders. Uh, the Winnipeg Jets obviously moved Pierre-Luc Dubois uh, in a trade this summer, which they did extremely well on considering it was known that he wanted out. Uh, and mm -hmm. they also let their, their captain Blake Wheeler go. So it's moves like that, that, you know, are, are big for sure. But it wasn't obviously ripping down the entire core. And now both teams are in first in their respective divisions and one and two in the Western Conference. Now, again, I'm not sure Vancouver is maybe as sustainable as people are trying to say they are. But the fact of the matter is, if Ottawa was in first in the uh, Atlantic Division, I didn't care if they'd be shooting 50% to get there. I would be over the moon <laughs> that they've had that kind of success, right? So I, I do kind of wonder if... if things keep going this way, maybe they have a slight improvement, you know, they look a little better or whatever. If they do kind of look that Winnipeg-Vancouver mold of, let's get a top pick, we're going to pick 7th, 8th overall, that guy's not going to make a difference right now, but in a year or two, he definitely, you know, is a guy we can pencil in, but more importantly, let's just try and move out, either, either move out one piece or move in a different piece that, you know, we feel can fit a little better. Um, it, again, it's hard to say without seeing everything, you know, kind of materialize, but I do think there is an avenue to move out players or player even, whoever that may be, and still see your team get better overall. We, ha we have seen that, and obviously it has to be making the right move. You can't just be salary dumping a guy for nothing, but like the Pierre-Luc Dubois trade... I can't get over how well that has worked for the Winnipeg Jets. And, you know, even ignoring the fact that Pierre Dubois has not looked very good with the LA Kings. He's been kind of unlucky, but he was playing on their fourth line the other night. Meanwhile, the Winnipeg Jets got uh, um, two players that are helping their middle nine uh, solidify the depth, as well as an extra pick, I believe, too. So just there are more options, I think, available than people want to admit. But yeah, I would be very surprised, I think, if at the end of the year, they're like, we need to full rebuild this again yeah i've actually i i really like the um the jets and and canucks um analogies you're making here and i've, I've got a couple thoughts the, the jets are actually to me in a lot of ways the the perfect target for what the sense did in the pierre luc dubois trade is a really good example of that because pierre luc dubois deal as a player is actually not too dissimilar from what I was talking about, how the sense of too many guys whose deal is scoring on the power play and shooting the puck a lot. Like Dubois and also you mentioned Blake Wheeler, like they're kind of not the steadiest defensive players. Wheeler especially was a catastrophe by the end of his time. No, again, no slight to the, the, the man's career. who's a beast in his prime, but, you know, time waits for no man. And the, the Jets... By keeping their core, but reconstituting the skill set of their complementary players have dramatically improved. And so I really actually like the Jets as a model from a roster construction perspective. What do the Sens need? What types of players do they need? To your point, what type of trade can you make that returns the types of players that would be complementary to the Sens score? I think that's that's a really good example. The one thing I will say, though, and I think you know, cannot be overstated is how much better both the Jets and the Canucks goaltending is than the Sens goaltending, yes. right? Like that's, you know, Connor Hellebuck, Thatcher Demko, not even the same universe as what the Sens are getting in terms of goaltending performance. And I know that there's been a lot of debate about 
whether the goalie's on the sensor, the problem or a problem, whatever. I guess it's hard to say what the problem is when everything's gone so poorly, but it's very difficult for me to arrive at any other conclusion than the goalies in Ottawa are a big problem. You know, it, it you look at the underlying numbers, you look at traditional numbers like save percentage, GAA, you look at simply the types of goals they're allowing. It's It's very difficult for me to find any avenue for saying anything more than the Sens are not playing well defensively and it is being made much, much worse by getting some of the worst goaltending in the league behind them. And for all of our talk about slightly retooling, you know, changing the complementary players, if they still got this level of goaltending next year, it would be hard. It would be very hard. It's hard to get anywhere with this level of goaltending. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the way that I've kind of gone about phrasing it now is the sense goaltending even if you don't want to say it's the problem it is a problem and it is a much larger problem than i think some people are trying to to kind of credit it as if if that makes sense you know like it just there's no stat you can look at where they're not bottom five in literally anything like as you mentioned just look at raw save percentage they're bottom five look at goals uh, uh goals Saved above expected, sorry. Uh, both their goalies are in the bottom, like five or eight of qualified goalies for that. If you look at like a 10-game cutoff or whatever. Like it's just, it it's tough because I do understand that it's kind of a chicken and the egg, but the Sens defense absolutely needs to get better. There are some goals that are just inexcusable on, on whether it's a defenseman or a forward losing their man. And you go, what do you want the goalie to do about it? But I can promise you that other teams have that happen as well, and it doesn't result into an average of five goals against a night or whatever. And, you know, like even just for example, if you look at the um, the natural stat tricks, sorry, the, the five-on-five stats, the Toronto Maple Leafs are right around where Ottawa is when it comes to Corsi against per 60 and uh, expected goals per se- against per 60, um, especially expected goals. I think they're literally like neck and neck at eight and nine worst in the league. Well, the Toronto Maple Leafs are in a playoff position right now, and you can argue that they should maybe be a little higher, but a big reason that they are not out of a playoff position is because Martin Jones, of all people, and Joseph Wall when he was healthy, have stopped a lot of pucks for them, even when they're making defensive breakdowns. And I'm not saying that the Ottawa Senators goalies need to be out here being a 920 goaltender or 930 or anything like that, but there has to be some other end of the extreme where it's like, you. it doesn't matter how well you're going to play defensively, if your goalie can only post a 910 save percentage when you don't let up anything of substance, they're just not a good NHL goalie. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I, I, evaluating defense in the NHL, evaluating defense in hockey period, I think is one of the most difficult things in professional sports. And the reason I say that is that we, from an eye test perspective, from an analytics perspective, have a very hard time quantifying what the goalie does independent of the defensive play, right? I don't don't know if, if you're a baseball fan or if your listeners are baseball fans, but one of the things that changed a lot about how pitchers were evaluated in baseball 
you know, with the advent of the sabermetrics era was the development of what are called fielding independent pitching. And so you've got all these stats that tell you, you know, how you expected the pitcher to perform absent the defense behind them. And what's important about that is that as a pitcher in baseball, once you've released the ball, there is nothing further that you can do. The hitter hits it and you hope your shortstop's got good range. They get to it and they throw the guy out. But, you know, if you had late career Derek Jeter behind you, no range, you know, but I had to take this opportunity to throw a slight at Derek Jeter. Um, you know, then there's only so much you can do, right? And in hockey, one of the things that is, it, it's very difficult to get over because um, there are so few goals that happen over the course of a game, relatively speaking, right? There's only three or four. And if you're judging a defenseman or a forward or just general defensive play, and they quote unquote do their job, but the shot goes in, it's hard. It's very hard to forget that. It's very hard to not say, well, maybe the defense could have been a little bit better. Maybe they could have closed that angle a little bit quicker, right? And at the end of the day, the defenseman or the forward or the team did what they were supposed to do. And so bad goaltending and also exist and can be, you know, even a bigger problem on a bad defensive team. Do you know what I mean? Like your team defense doesn't need to be absolutely perfect for it to be the goalie's fault. Um, When you play hockey, anyone who's played hockey at any competitive level, the the general refrain is to never blame the goal, right? You just don't blame the goalie for anything, I think is – to be honest, a well-adapted thing because you need your goalie to be in a good headspace. Your goalie's not in a good headspace. It's going to be a problem. But that same mentality can't extend to analysis of their play, right? Like if we're trying to be cold-eyed and objective about how the team's played, like if I was on the Senators, someone asked me, are the goalies the problem? I would never say yes. Even if in my heart of hearts I knew, I would never be like, yes, Jonas Corposalo keeps letting in weak ones behind me. You know, no, that's just not how hockey dynamics work. But if you're looking at the actual causes, if you're trying to be, you know, scientific about what's actually happening here, yeah, they're letting in more goals than they should, even taking into account how poor the sense defense has been. Yeah, and honestly, like, I think a pretty good example of that was Thursday night where I saw a bunch of people, well, not a bunch, Twitter's always such a sphere that you can see three or four people and be like, I saw a bunch of people say this, but I I did see some people point out, it's like, see, look what happens when they play good goal, uh, good defense in front of Corpus He doesn't let up four. It's like, okay, yeah, but he still had up two, one that he absolutely should have had. And then even the second one, like it, it was, it is what it is, but it's like, just because they scored six and outscored their problems and scored outscored them early doesn't mean that the goaltending needs to get a pass. And I thought Corpus Allo made some good saves as well, but you know, like the goals that did go in still, it's like, okay, but we can't just ignore them now because the team won, you know, like it still needs almost what you were saying, but on the opposite side of things, it's like, just because you won doesn't mean you shouldn't still analyze what went wrong and what might go wrong in the future. If you don't fix it, you know, and yeah, I'm just at the point where I do get it. Like, no one no one is sitting here saying the team plays good defense or strong defense or anything like that. But I, I do think it's gotten a little too aggressive. Like, well, can't blame the goalie for that one. Can't blame the goalie for that one. It's like, man, 
if we can't blame the goalie for like 98% of the, the goals he lets in and, and he's posting an 880 save percentage, like what are we even doing here? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I, I understand the the sentiment that, that folks have about wanting to improve team defense because it's very real and I'm, I'm there with it. But, you know, to my point earlier, if they did execute the type of, you know, Pierre-Luc Dubois trade where they, you know, move out at one of the forwards and they get a couple complementary guys and now they're playing like an airtight unit. If they got to that level, you know, what does that actually mean in terms of moving the needle realistically in terms of shot and chances and these types of things? Okay, maybe they go from being like the 20th or 24th ranked team or whatever they are by those measures, you know, to like 10th or something. I don't think anyone would argue they're going to jump in the top five. If you're still getting 32nd overall level goaltending, fringe playoff team at best, right? At best. And there's just kind of no way around that. And I just don't, I also do not see if the rest of the season goes like this, just from a goaltending perspective, maybe they play well enough. They get their act together that, you know, they kind of win a few more than they lose the rest of the way. It's not a good year, but uh, you, I don't know, we ended on an okay note, but the goaltending is not like meaningfully improved. I don't know, even if it is, I am not sure. We've, we've talked about how, we would both, I think, be hesitant to do like a major transformation on the, the roster from a skater's perspective. I don't know how you roll these two guys back next season. I just do not know. Yeah, I, I don't think you can. Like, I just, I, I genuinely don't think it's possible. And and honestly, like, I'm at the point where unless one of them or both, you know, obviously Forsberg is out and they just placed him on uh, the injured reserve list, which is unfortunate, but I just, even if they bounce back to like they play 900, 905 hockey the rest of the year, I still don't think you can go into next year with both of them. It's just, it's shown that it can't work. And to your point about, uh, you know, even if they play very, very well top of their tier, and but they have bad goaltending, Ottawa is dead last in save percentage uh, in the NHL this year at an 884. The two teams right above them, the Carolina Hurricanes, 887, and the New Jersey Devils, 891. Both of those teams, people would have guaranteed would have been playoff teams heading into the year. Well, the New Jersey Devils have 47 points, which currently puts them three points out of a playoff spot, four points out of a playoff spot uh, as we talk right now. And the Carolina Hurricanes, who have bounced back, they're 7-2-1. They're playing really well recently, but they have 53 points and are only two points into a playoff spot. So exactly what you were saying with poor goaltending, those are two of the best rosters in the NHL. Simply put, the New Jersey Devils and the Carolina Hurricanes, I'm willing to bet a lot of money would have been top seven, probably both of them in Stanley Cup odds entering the year. And both mm-hmm. of them are fringe playoff teams because they haven't had goaltending. You know, you look a little further up, Minnesota, you know, not a horrible roster either. Fringe playoff team. The Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, that's that's one that has been a perennial cup contender they're tied for the final wild card spot right now because they have the sixth worst save percentage in the league like it, it just mm-hmm. it, it it highlights exactly what you're saying it does not matter how good the roster is if you have save per, uh, a save percentage that is bottom five in the league you are just going to struggle no matter how well you play to even make the playoffs yeah 884 i didn't know it's that bad that's <laughs> that's like 1986 level goaltending um the yeah to, to your point about the the devils especially i'll just pick up on to me at this like even now i look at that roster god there are maybe like three teams i would take ahead of those skaters right like colorado 
I don't know, maybe, maybe Dallas, uh, maybe Vegas. Like, do you know what I yeah. like? Maybe. Yep. Vegas and Vegas. I'd put right there. Maybe, maybe Edmonton. Edmonton is the other one. Yeah. Edmonton, Edmonton skaters are super, super strong. It's hard though. In the East, I'm not sure there's any teams. Skaters, I would take ahead of the Devils. It, or at the least, you know, at the very least, I think there's a compelling case for them. So yeah, you know, that the Devils are exactly the kind of team I was thinking of. You can be really, really good and your goalie can be bad and, and that's it. That's hockey. So, yep. I mean, the, the problem I have with, with solving the goaltending conundrum is that goaltending performance is by far the most random in hockey. And there are, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've got a different number, but I, I would count maybe five or six guys in the whole league that I feel very confident will be very good next year. Right. And then after that, there's some guys that I feel pretty good about. And then a whole bunch of question marks. Like look in Nashville, UC Soros for years has been one of the guys that you would have said was not like the best goalie in the league, but you felt pretty good about him. He was terrible. Five year. Yep. And he's been horrible. Yeah, he's been horrible. So you know, it's like, it's like Thatcher Demko, I mean, even Jake Ottinger has struggled a bit this year. I would have said Ottinger. Um, Hellebuck. Uh, Sorokin, Hellebuck, yep. Sorokin. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep, those are the guys. And then after that, it starts getting dicey pretty quick. Yep, and, um, and even Shesterkin hasn't been amazing this year. So like, he's been exactly. fine, but... So what is, what's the sense solution here? I don't know, to, maybe to, to kind of bring this back to where we would bring it all full circle. We are saying at the top, you know, what are the obvious solutions? There are some, I think, you know, we've elucidated. There are some fixes. There are some things that they could go about doing to the roster. There's definitely some hope in a lot of areas. But the goalie question, boy, I, do, I really don't have an easy answer there. There's definitely, I wouldn't, I would be very hesitant to put any expectations on Sogard uh, as like the savior next year. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, this exact thing is why I was so down on the Corpus Allo contract this summer. Because mm-hmm. Corpus Allo is the exact type of guy you should avoid paying any kind of term to, you know, like for a large majority of his career, he's been maybe not quite this bad, but he has not been a very good NHL goalie. He was really good last year for about 75% of the year. And that got him a giant payday and good for him. But like even just sorting by goal saved above expected, uh, you know, for the, the league leaders right now, I'm just going to read off a couple guys that are in the top 10. So it starts with Markstrom, which good for him. You know, he seems to be on and off, on and off. Hellebuck, Demko, those names aren't super surprising, right? Connor Ingram is number four. Charlie Lindgren is number six. Joey Decor is number nine. Aiden Hill is number 10. Maybe Aiden Hill's not as surprising, but still a little bit. Cam Talbot is number 11 after the year that Cam Talbot just had last year. So I, I just, my biggest problem with the Corpus Allo contract was it eliminates their ability to go and try and find guys to take flyers on. And again, you look at what the New Jersey Devils and the Carolina Hurricanes are going through. Sometimes those flyers are not going to work, but I still just think that is a better option to try and find someone like that, that you can plug in for the cheap. And if it works out great, if not, you got to go find someone else. Then just committing to four or five years of a guy like Jonas Corpus Allo, where Let's be honest, even the upside is probably not a top 10 goalie. You know, maybe he's right on the fringe if he's playing peak of his powers, but Corpus Allo was never going to be a top five goalie or anything like that. And they're not paying him exactly like that, but I just, I would have much rather see them avoid the term with a goalie contract like that and just 
if it means until you can develop one of your own, which again, a lot easier said than done, but I would have rather them try and take some swings or, you know, go with a two to three year kind of contract on, on, you know, someone that is in their mid twenties. I just felt like there was better options and, you know, I, you're, you're stuck with Corpus Allo now. It's as simple as that. So it's basically, yeah. Who do you want to try and pair him with as a tandem guy? And I don't have a great answer for that, to be honest, but uh, they, they're going to have to go make a swing. I think uh, not a swing, but they, they need to go find someone this summer, because as you said, I don't think it's fair or reasonable to expect Sogard to just come up and be a 9-10, 9-15 goalie that saves us this team, you know? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, I was going to say, you know, no one that were interested in your uh, fantasy sports stories except yourself. But I will say that Connor Ingram was available on the waiver wire in my fantasy league. And I'm sure it was available in everyone's waiver wire in their fantasy league, you know, three weeks into the season because no one expected Connor Ingram to during this kind of season uh, for Arizona. So yeah, look, goaltending is volatile. Um, even Cam Talbot, I feel is someone who, a cutter of, of people lately have been holding up him him up part of me as an example of you know it's it's all the defense fault look you know even Cam Talbot's good has been cooling off dramatically he's 11th in in goal save but I think if you looked at the last 15 games he's he's way down he was near a the bottom. really hot start yeah he was he was absolutely in fuego to to, to start the season yeah goaltending is extremely random um, doesn't but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try right like that's and 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 actually, you know, to extend the thought, if the angle you were going to take is, you know, quote unquote, not try and just take a gamble every year, you are 100 percent spot on. You can't give your gambles five year contracts or, or whatever. Right. It's it's got to be like, ah, you know, this guy seems like he might be OK. Pay him for a year at, at two mil. It doesn't work. Doesn't work. Right. And then and then we walk away from it. Um, yep, but yeah, exactly. I, the most just the conclude that the goaltending is the most intractable situation the the forwards the defense the overall composition of the team i can see with some tweaks with some sensible work you know maybe the ceiling's not as high as we'd hoped when the rebuild started unless unless a few guys have another gear that i'm not expecting but with some sensible tweaks it should very much be um you know at least a good team Better than a French playoff team, a good, a legitimately good team, but the the goaltending, I'm not sure about. That's that's a much that's a tough question. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I, I think the next couple of weeks here, and we'll kind of wrap up with this maybe, but the next couple of weeks here are going to be a big test for this team. Not only just because it is approaching the trade deadline, but they got a pretty sneaky tough schedule coming up. They got the Winnipeg Jets, who I already mentioned is you know, one of the best teams in the league right now, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers who have been shockingly really good this year. Uh, the Canadians, obviously that'll always be a, a bit of a heated matchup, but then they have the Bruins and the Rangers, two of the best teams in the league, the Predators, the Red Wings, two kind of mid-pack teams and the Maple Leafs to, to round out their next eight games. So it's, I don't want to say a swing couple eight games, but as we were talking about earlier, if they continue to struggle and go two, five, and one or whatever in the next eight games, that probably signals a pretty obvious thing of where they should be headed with this this season and this roster. Um, but if they can find a way to battle back, and you know they got to be above five hundred, I would say at the uh, in these eight next eight games. Sorry, but if they can, you know, show that there is some resiliency there, and with a healthy roster, they look a lot better. 
at least that gives you some ideas of a building block going forward. But again, like this upcoming schedule here is very crucial, I think, even for just short and long-term decisions on where this team goes. Yeah. You know, we were talking about level of play under under Mappin. Was it improved uh, you know, or not? And we were saying one of the things that's moved them slightly towards, I guess, a little bit better in some categories has been their play in the last four games. Excluding Colorado, it's been pretty soft opponents, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and if this team is serious and this core is serious, then to your point, the next eight games would in theory be a test of that group. It feels kind of, you know, disappointing in retrospect, but at the start of the year, I mean, I wasn't the only one that, that wrote this. Other people did too, but they had all those home games. They had a relatively soft schedule and it really felt like that was the chance, right? And they needed to come out of those first 15 games, like nine and six or 10 and five or something. And then, you know, you're off and running. You can, you can weather some struggles at various points in the year and struggles always come in the A2 game season. Um, if you, you know, are winning the games, you're supposed to be winning, right? There's not going to be a lot of the, 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 the schedule is kind of tough now, right? Um, the season, you know, is it, are they going to battle back in the playoffs? No. Again, barring them going 34 and eight, if the senators go 34 and eight and people want to be like, you were too negative. God bless, man. If if I watch the Ottawa Senators go 34 and 8 over the next 42 years, you wouldn't even be able to tell me anything. Like I wouldn't even care. You, you could bring up all of my negativity and be like, I I'll just think that's wonderful. I just watched the team go 34 and 8. Yep. I would I would run to Ottawa to go watch the next playoff <laughs> game. And I, I live six hours dr- drive away. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's great. Like it's it's a good point. And honestly, like the that it is unfortunate with the how the, the season started because I, I think even on top of that, you know, I'm not a huge momentum kind of guy. Like, I think it gets maybe over-talked about in hockey, both, you know, within the game and even just on a larger scale. But I, I do think there is something to, for the third, fourth, fifth year in a row, they get off to a horrible start or, you know, a mediocre start where they're about 500, have just an horrendous November and it's all at home, you know, it's all against an easy schedule. And I'd have to imagine that, you know, whether they admit it or not in the room, it's probably a feeling of, well, here we go again. You know, like we did this the previous two years and we couldn't dig ourselves out of it. And then by the time you look and it's the end of November and they're like four or five games below 500 or whatever. It's like, like, I just can't imagine that's easy on the, uh, the mental aspect either when you've gone through this so many times already. Yeah. I, listen, pro players will tell you, they only take it one game at a time. And, and to some degree, that is true. Like, pro athletes are remarkably good at focusing on singular tasks. But it's also like a bunch of hooey. They look They look at the schedule. They know, right? There's, there's just, if you go back and read some interviews from the start of the year, the players talked about it too. This was an openly disgusting. They knew they needed to get off to a good start. And, you know, you, you get 10, 15, 20 games into the year, and you're five and five or 10 and 10 or whatever. Yeah. You know, like it's, 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 you know, they're human beings, right. They, they know. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I cannot imagine it would have been easy getting off to, as you said, yet another slow start. For sure. And it, you know, it's all on them now to, 
to kind of turn it around and, and show why they can be difference makers for the franchise going forward. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll be keeping a close eye on that. Uh, Nate, thank you so much for joining me today. You know, plug some stuff, where can people find you and everything that you do? Sure. So I'm, as you mentioned, the top, the managing editor for silver seven. Uh, we are the longest running independent uh, fan site covering the Ottawa senators. Um, we, you can find our stuff at silver7sends.com, all, all one word. Um, our stuff is entirely reader-supported. Um, if you want to subscribe uh, to the site, we do a kind of additional premium content for subscribers, where we keep the vast majority of the content free. It's all fan-driven. Um, and we recently this season have started doing uh, coverage of the PWHL as well. Um, so if you're interested in PWHL Ottawa, team now that's a good hockey team uh coverage uh we, you know we've got them covered we've got a great um collaboration with la brigade uh, to give some french content for our, our francophone readers as well um and just you know generally uh really pleased with um what we've been we've been doing the last little while check us out um you can follow me on twitter um although i'm a lot less active on there than i used to be but my handle is at nkb121 or the the site's handle uh, is that silver seven sends we, we live tweet pretty much every game as well. Yeah. Can't recommend going, checking, uh, checking that out enough. Uh, the, the work you guys do on the site is absolutely awesome. And uh, Nate, we'll definitely have to have you on down the road. And uh, I'm sure there will always be lots to talk about as this team seems to be never shortage of uh, storylines. It's never been boring covering the sense. I will say there was maybe a brief period of time at the, like the absolute depths of the rebuild when it felt hopeless. But even then, there was always something going on. So, you know, yes, it has always been fun. There's a reason why I've been writing about these guys for 10 years. Um, and I really appreciate uh, you having me on, Alex. It's always a pleasure. Huge thanks to Nate for joining me uh, on this episode. We really dove into a lot of topics and went uh, probably a little longer than usual. But uh, I think it was really good content that I hope you all enjoyed as much as I enjoyed recording it. Uh, as always, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at NHL Sends and stuff, the podcast on Twitter at Last Word on Sends, and all my work at lastwordonhockey.com. As I referenced in the podcast, I did actually get back to writing this week. I have a piece on lastwordonhockey.com right now about Ridley Gregg and why he deserves a bigger role with the Ottawa Senators, even with a healthy roster. We touched on some of the points in this podcast, but if you want to go read the full piece, it is out now. Uh, and if you want to follow my other podcast, wherever you're listening to this, the MNM Hockey Podcast, you can do that as well. Hope you all have a great week and talk to you all next week.